Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last episode, we looked at all of chapter 6 in Matthew except for what has come to be called the Lord's Prayer. In this episode, we will examine that prayer. This prayer is one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. It is recited so much that many people who have grown up in church have memorized it merely from hearing it so often. The prayer is commonly understood as a simple, generic prayer appropriate for almost any occasion. It appears to start out with a standard declaration of praise, which is then followed by some pretty basic universal petitions. However, what may appear general and generic to the modern reader becomes more specific, powerful, and revolutionary when understood in its original context. In fact, I think it should be called A Prayer for a Revolutionary Movement. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 13 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Although many people already have this prayer already memorized in their heads, many others do not. So let's begin with the actual text of this prayer, plus an appendage about trespasses, Matthew 6, 9-14. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now, in my introduction, I mentioned that the prayer appears to begin with a standard declaration of praise, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. However, scholars have recently begun to understand this not as a praise, but as a petition. The petition is for God to vindicate God's name. In other words, God, make your name holy. Now, that might sound strange to us, but it is a constant refrain in the prophets. The idea being that as long as God's people are suffering under oppression, God's name is profaned among the nations and that the only way to make God's name revered again is to rescue the people from oppression. For example, Ezekiel 36, 23-30 speaks of God's rescue of the Israelite people from among the nations where they have been scattered by foreign invasion of their land. Ezekiel expresses God's intention this way, I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, 
And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from among the nations, gather you from among the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. I will summon the grain and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field abundant, so that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And Psalm 79.9 reads, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us. To make God's name holy again is to liberate God's people from oppression. So that is how this prayer starts, with a petition to God to deliver the people from oppression, thereby making God's name revered as it was before. Now, the use of Father to refer to God presents a problem to those of us who value gender equality in the image of God. But some scholars maintain that the use of the title Father for God in this prayer, rather than promoting patriarchy, actually challenges the specific structure of patriarchy in the first century Mediterranean world because it functions to undercut the hierarchy of household patriarchs in that society. You see, that society was constructed and essentially governed politically, socially, and economically through a pyramid of households, each led by a patriarch, with the Roman emperor at the top of the pyramid as the grand patriarch. The Roman Empire was understood as Caesar's household. Caesar was the most powerful father, the big daddy, as it were, at the top of the pyramid of fathers. The common peasants and other poor and marginal people who follow Jesus and Matthew are at the very bottom of this pyramid. They suffer under the oppression of the fathers of the great households, especially the great household of Big Daddy Caesar. So praying to the Father in heaven constitutes then an appeal to a higher power than that of Caesar and the pyramid of the patriarchal households. Given how the rest of this prayer goes, it is likely that Jesus is teaching his followers to recognize only one Father, God. He will later teach his followers to call no one on earth Father. Their only Father is God, who will establish a new society of justice and mercy. Which brings us to the next sentence in this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the normal rendering of the prayer, this second sentence is a sort of non-sequitur, a new thought. The prayer goes, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pause. New thought. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These two sentences have little to do with each other. However, if the first sentence is a petition for liberation— God, vindicate your name by liberating us from oppression, then the second sentence is not a new thought, but naturally flows from it. Bring your kingdom, your will, on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven on earth means liberation for the oppressed. As I have been arguing throughout this podcast series, the kingdom of heaven on earth is a new society of justice and mercy where all hierarchies are leveled and poverty and hunger come to an end.
This petition for a new society free of hunger and poverty leads naturally then to the next line of the prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. This line both reflects the peasant context in first century Galilee and also draws on one of Israel's foundational stories. It reflects the peasant context of first century Galilee because daily sustenance constituted the primary concern for peasants at that time and place. As I have described in previous episodes, hunger and malnutrition were widespread in Galilee at this time. The majority of the population lived at or below subsistence level. But even beyond that, this line references the story of the Exodus, specifically the manna that provided daily food for the people in the wilderness. In the Exodus story, which, as I've described in previous episodes, has been alluded to multiple times already in Matthew, since Matthew presents Jesus as leading a second Exodus, in the Exodus story, God provides daily bread, as it were, in the form of manna that falls from the sky and settles like dew on the ground in the morning. And then God provides quail in the evening. While modern readers tend to understand this story of manna and quail as just another miracle story, it actually has a strong sociopolitical message. In the story, whenever people collect manna in the morning, no matter how much they collect, no one has too little and no one has too much. So Israel in the desert is an economically egalitarian society. Everyone has the same amount and kind of food. Also, if someone tries to store manna on any other day than the day before the Sabbath, the manna spoils. So there is no chance of stockpiling manna wealth and selling it on the open market when it might fetch a handsome profit, something the elites in first century Galilee were actually doing with food crops. Elites in the first century Mediterranean world, as I described in the last episode, stockpiled cash crops while the peasants starved. So with this line, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus contrasts the practices of the elites of the empire to a foundational story of Israel's beginnings, drawing on this ancient account of an egalitarian time when there were no poor or wealthy in Israel, when no one stockpiled food while others went hungry, but rather the people trusted in God for their daily bread. This reflects not only the wisdom of that ancient story, but also, as I mentioned in the last episode, an attitude common among poor folk of trusting God daily. Jesus draws on this ancient wisdom and on peasant tradition as the ideal petition in this prayer for a revolutionary new society. Jesus then moves on to address one of the most pernicious drivers of poverty and wealth disparity in the ancient world, debt. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Now, of course, modern interpretations of this line in the prayer assume that Jesus is referring to sins, the moral failings of individuals, albeit in relation to other individuals. In fact, the most common English rendering of this line uses the word trespasses, instead of debts. But the Greek word used here is a word that means specifically economic debt. 
And in the original context of this prayer in first century Galilee, addressing economic debt makes a lot of sense. While we may think of debt as a modern economic crisis that perpetually wreaks havoc in our society, it was even worse in antiquity. The ancient world was rife with debt crises leading to debt rebellions and occasional debt amnesties to stave off rebellions. During 1,000-year period between 2400 and 1400 BCE, Mesopotamia held 30 debt amnesties in which common citizens' debts to the elites were forgiven. Egypt and Assyria also seem to have some history of debt amnesties. And Israel's Torah prescribes debt forgiveness every seven years. That is not to say that it all went well or smoothly. As I said a minute ago, many of these debt amnesties were held to stave off debt rebellion because when they did not happen, there often was rebellion. There were several debt revolts in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, in the century and a half before Jesus was born. And there was one in Galilee right after Jesus was born. And in the peasant uprising in Galilee and Judea in the year 66, not long before Matthew was written, one of the first things that the rebels did when they took Jerusalem was to burn all the debt records held at the temple, which is where debt records tended to be kept, part of the function of the temple being a bank for the wealthy. So debt was a natural topic for a peasant prayer. And Jesus' revolutionary prayer for a new society includes a petition for a society free from debt. The prayer ends with these lines, And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. That's the rendering in the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. The Greek word for trial can also be translated testing or temptation. Understood that way, these final lines may very well be another allusion to the Exodus. The time of testing alludes to Israel's testing or temptation in the desert in which the people are tested in order to form them into a free nation of justice and equality. Part of the testing is the lesson of the manna in the desert. The evil one in this allusion to the Exodus is the Egyptian empire or the Egyptian emperor, the pharaoh, or the spirit behind him, the devil. In episode 7, I explained why the devil, who comes to tempt or test Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4, another Matthew passage that recalls the Exodus, I explained why the devil is the spirit of empire. That was how the devil or Satan was identified in Jewish resistance literature of the time. See especially Revelation 12 and 13, where the devil or Satan is identified as the one who gives power to the beast, which is an image of the Roman Empire. Rescue us from the evil one means rescue us from the empire or the spirit of empire. Of course, the current empire is Rome. The liberation from the Egyptian empire in the Exodus story is followed by a wilderness journey that is a time of testing or temptation for Israel. So this prayer to keep us from the time of trial or testing or temptation and deliver us from the evil one is a prayer for liberation from the current empire Rome without the pain that comes with the struggle for liberation. 
Of course, it might seem odd for Jesus to teach them to avoid the pain of struggle, especially since he will later teach them that the only way to freedom is the way of the cross. But Jesus himself will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane to avoid the way of the cross. The petition to avoid the time of testing is a prayer to avoid what is often inevitable, even necessary, in the struggle for freedom and justice. But the Gospel of Matthew tells its readers that it is, nevertheless, an appropriate thing to pray for. These last two lines may also reflect the situation of peasants in Galilee in the first century. The phrase, the time of trial, can refer to a legal court. Coming right after the petition for freedom from debt, these last two lines may complement that petition by asking God to keep them from being hauled into court for not being able to pay a debt. Such a possibility was a constant one for heavily indebted peasant sharecroppers in that time and place. This prayer, then, alludes to the exodus and the subsequent wilderness temptation while referring more concretely to the current peasant situation. The time of trial refers both to the current danger of being dragged into court and also to the time of Israel's testing in the desert. The evil one refers both to the empire or its spirit and to any elite oppressor or the spirit behind oppressive systems. Double or even triple references and allusions are common in this gospel. So in conclusion, what more recent church tradition calls the Lord's Prayer is actually, in its original context, a prayer to rescue the people from oppression and establish a new society free of debt, poverty, and hunger. It is a prayer rooted in the peasant realities of Galilee in the first century while alluding to the more ancient liberation story of the Exodus. It is a prayer for a revolutionary movement. My name is Bert Newton. The theme music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. And this has been Episode 13 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.